0: Introduction to the Chronicle History of King Lear, the original of Shakespeare's King Lear, edited by Sidney Lee, lit. d. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Introduction. First production of the piece in 1594. The British legend of which King Lear is the hero, was first turned to purposes of drama in the spring of 1594. On 6th April of that year, and again two days later, Philip Henslow, the theatrical manager, notes in his diary that a piece which he calls King Lear was acted at the Rose Theatre in London, by the Queen's Men and my Lord of Sussex together two distinguished companies of the day were acting in combination, the one company being under the patronage of Queen Elizabeth herself, and the other under the patronage of one of the Queen's leading courtiers, the Earl of Sussex. From the first performance Henslow derived the fairly substantial sum of thirty-eight shillings, and from the second that of twenty-six shillings. Footnote: HENSLOW'S DIARY ed greg 1904 part one page seventeen henslow by an obvious slip of the pen gives the year of the first entry fifteen ninety three instead of fifteen ninety four it is probable that the piece was written originally for the queen's company and was first performed by that company before its temporary junction with the earl of sussex's men in succeeding entries on the same page of his diary Henslow mentions the production, all in the following June, of three plays whose titles also strike a Shakespearean note, viz. Andronicus, Hamlet, and the Taming of a Shrew. Andronicus is doubtless the sanguinary tragedy which was first published in 1594, and is included in all editions of Shakespeare's works. Hamlet, and the Taming of a Shrew, are early dramatic versions of popular stories on which Shakespeare brought his mighty faculty to bear at a subsequent date. Henslow's play of Hamlet is not extant. The play of the Taming of a Shrew was, like Titus Andronicus, printed and published in 1594, the year of its production by Henslow. The same significance which belongs to Henslow's contemporary venture of the Taming of a Shrew attaches to his King Lear. Henslow's King Lear laid the foundation on which Shakespeare built a dozen years later the stupendous Tragedy which is known by the same title. The play of 1594 was the clay out of which Shakespeare fashioned the most poignant of all his triumphs in tragic art. Publishing Licence of 1594 Some mystery envelops the history of the publication of the pre-Shakespearean drama of King Lear on may fourteenth fifteen ninety four a month after henslow produced the piece at the rose theatre edward white a london stationer and bookseller obtained a licence from the stationers company to publish quote, a book entitled the most famous chronicle history of lear king of england and his three daughters footnote arbour stationer's register two six hundred and forty nine There is no reason to doubt that the play to which Henslow's Diary refers was the book which Edward White received this licence to publish, but no publication of King Lear corresponding with the date of the licence of May fourteenth, fifteen 1594 has come to light. There is a remote chance that the book was published in a small edition, every copy of which has disappeared. We know that the play of Titus Andronicus, which Henslow produced in the same year, was after due entry in the stationer's register published by edward white the licensee of king lear in partnership with another stationer during the eventful year fifteen ninety four all original copies of this first edition of titus vanished from sight until nineteen hundred and five when a single exemplar was discovered in sweden the elusive problem of edward white's dealings with king lear may ultimately be solved by a revelation of like kind At present there is no tangible proof that his licence of may fourteenth fifteen ninety four materialized in the shape of a book. footnote It is worth noting that on the same day that White received his licence for King Lear he obtained permission to publish four other plays viz The History of Friar Bacon and Friar Bongay, the famous history of John Gaunt son to King Edward the third with his conquest of Spain and marriage of his two daughters to the kings of Castile and Portugal, etc., the book of David and Bethsaba, and a pastoral pleasant comedy of Robin Hood and little John, etc., of these four pieces only one is extant in an edition of fifteen ninety four viz the history of Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, which was by Robert Green, and is described on the title-page as having been played by her majesty's servants of david and bessemer which was by george peel the earliest edition now known was published not by edward white but by adam islip five years later in fifteen ninety nine no copies of robin hood or of john of gaunt are known to have come from the press at any time the Conquest of Spain by John of Gaunt is mentioned by Henslow early in 1601 as a joint production of William Rankins and Richard Hathaway. For a careful analysis of the accessible information respecting the publication of the old play of King Lear, see a paper on The Date of King Lear by Robert Adgar Law in the Publications of the Modern Language Association of America, Volume 21. End footnote. THE PUBLICATION OF 1605 On May eighteenth, sixteen 1605, after the lapse of some eleven years, King Lear reappeared in the pages of the Stationer's Company Register as the title of a projected publication. A stationer and printer named Simon Stafford then obtained a new license to publish, quote, a book called The Tragical History of King Lear and His Three Daughters, etc., as it was lately acted, end quote to the new licence a note of somewhat unusual character was appended it ran to the effect that stafford the licensee assigned on certain conditions his right in the copy to a bookseller named john wright the company authorised wright to publish in place of stafford the tragical history of king lear and his three daughters provided that simon stafford shall have the printing of this book footnote stationer's register three two hundred eighty nine and footnote the license in this qualified shape took effect stafford quickly printed a volume which was duly published by wright with this title the true chronicle history of king lear and his three daughters Goneril, reagan and cordella as it hath been diverse and sundry times lately acted that work is reprinted in this volume original copies and reprints the volume is rare only three copies are now known and one of these is imperfect the two perfect copies are respectively in the british museum press mark one hundred and sixty one a fifty one and in the library of mr a h huth the former of these is slightly cropped the imperfect copy is also in the british museum press mark c thirty four one two leaves c two and c three are missing from the volume and are supplied in manuscript the original edition has been thrice reprinted already for the first time in seventeen seventy nine by george stephens in his six old plays volume two pages three hundred and seventy seven to four hundred and sixty four again in eighteen seventy five by mr w c hazlett in his revised edition of j p collier's shakespeare's library a collection of the romances novels poems and histories used by shakespeare as the foundation of his dramas volume six pages three hundred and five to three hundred and eighty seven and lastly in nineteen hundred and seven by the malone society stevens reprints the text with great care although he is not immaculate mr hazlitt's edition is defaced by numerous typographical errors the malone society's reprint which was prepared by the Society's general editor, Mr. W. W. Gregg, and was checked by Mr. R. Warwick Bond, satisfied every requirement of accuracy. The stage directions the statement on the title page of the sixteen hundred and five edition that the piece quote, hath been diverse and sundry times lately acted end quote, is amply confirmed by the abundance of stage directions scattered through the text the printer clearly worked on a manuscript prepared for theatrical uses the numerous stage directions possess an interest of their own they illustrate the mode in which the tragedy was represented in the elizabethan theatre though scenery was absent there was no lack of properties of appropriate costume or of suitable musical accompaniments a table spread with food and drink pots of ale riding ones books purses a basket bags of money swords and daggers are all specifically noted as implements requisite to the action the galleon king and his companions twice adopt disguises in the first case appearing in the habiliments of pilgrims and in the second in the dress of country folk the kings of cornwall and cambria make their entry in one scene booted and spurred and elsewhere cast lots with dice mariners are described as wearing sea-gowns and sea-caps appropriate illustrations by means of sound are likewise enjoined claps of thunder accentuate the perils of king lear's wanderings in the concluding scenes drums and trumpets are frequently bidden accompany the incidents of battle a still i e softly played march shows that modulation was observed in the execution Mingled notes of drums and trumpets bring the play to a close. The gestures of the actors are also defined and hints given as to their facial expression. The characters are bidden start or frown. Now they whisper together, now show signs of faintness. They sleep and wake and reel. In the fight, they chase one another to the door at the back of the stage but in spite of the amplitude of the stage directions other apparatus which is necessary to make the progress of the representation quite clear to the reader is wanting in the original edition save for the appearance of the words actus i on the opening page the original text is without scenic divisions and lacks a list of dramatis personae or any specific mention of the scenes of the action A list of characters in order of entrance was, with scenic divisions, first supplied in the Malone Society's reprint. In the present edition, divisions into acts and indications of the various, scenes of the action are given for the first time as well. The full stage directions, with their precise notes of the entries and exits of the actors, clearly suggest the beginning and ending of each successive scene. The intended limits of the acts can only be conjectured. They appear to be of irregular lengths. There is less difficulty with the scenic descriptions. The speeches throughout plainly suggest the various places in which the episodes unfold themselves. The History of the 1605 Edition There is little question that the present play of King Lear, which was published in 1605, was identical with the work which was produced by Henslow at the Rose Theatre, and was licensed for publication by Edward White in 1594. Footnote. A difference in the titles of the two pieces, as recorded in the two licenses of the stationer's company, cannot be overlooked. The earlier entry describes the piece as, quote, the most famous chronicle history, end quote. The second entry changes the designation into the tragical history. The temper of the drama of sixteen hundred five may well be termed tragical in spite of the happy ending, but the misdescription, such as it was, was corrected on the printed title page, and lends no colour to the inference that the two entries in the stationers register relate to two distinct works. End of footnote. Internal evidence clearly points to the earlier year as the period of composition. A like conclusion is strongly supported externally by the personal relations which subsisted between John Wright, the publisher of 1605, and Edward White, the licensee of 1594. Wright was White's apprentice from 1594 to 1602. King Lear was the first publication which he undertook, after he had acquired under white's auspices the freedom of the company june twenty eighth sixteen hundred and two wright's issue of king lear in sixteen hundred and five was doubtless the fruit of some friendly negotiation with his old master footnote john wright who was a bookseller only not a printer mainly dealt in chap-books and ballads but he undertook the sale of half of thorpe's famous edition of shakespeare's sonnets in sixteen hundred and nine and in sixteen eleven a reprint of marlowe's faustus End of footnote. nor was white's legal interest in the play of king lear extinguished by wright's action the copyright descended to white's heir and on the death of his son in sixteen twenty four it became the property of the son's widow footnote. in sixteen twenty four the younger white's widow made over the copyright of king lear to another stationer named aldi when Aldi's widow died in 1640, the copyright passed to her son-in-law, Olton. That the line of descent is traceable through so long a period is evidence that some pecuniary value was thought to attach to the copyright for more than half a century. First Publication of Shakespeare's Lear Some additional bibliographical data are necessary to the full understanding of the place that the old play fills in the realm of Shakespearean study shakespeare's great tragedy of king lear was acted at court on the day after christmas in sixteen hundred and six the year following wright's publication of the old piece shakespeare in all probability penned his own play within a few months of its presentation at whitehall eleven months after that event on november twenty second sixteen hundred and seven two stationers nathaniel butter and john busby obtained a license to publish a book called master william shakespeare his history of king lear shakespeare's work was first published in sixteen hundred and eight thus the old play in the extant edition of sixteen hundred and five was on sale in the bookshops nearly three years before shakespeare's dramatic version of the legend was at the disposal of the reading public general characteristics the uses which shakespeare made of the old play constitute its supreme title to study at the same time both choice and treatment of topic give the piece some genuine interest from the point of view of the literary historian the choice of subject illustrates the strength of contemporary enthusiasm for national legend the treatment shows how a modicum of ingenuity and dramatic faculty or instinct might in an era of unusual intellectual and spiritual alertness infuse human interest and pathos into the bare improbabilities of legendary narrative new characters and incident vivify the old record with a liberal and often surprising originality yet in the more artistic or aesthetic aspect the work remains an elementary essay in the dramatic art the dim intuitions of character are without subtlety the verse is manipulated with a cold correctness the language is rarely touched by poetic emotion though its simplicity leaves little room for false sentiment or bombast footnote the writer's grammar is at times open to exception the frequent employment of the singular verb with a plural subject c two four one hundred and four note is no uncommon elizabethan usage but the habit suggests rusticity when it is found as in this play conjoined with the occasional appearance of a plural verb with a singular subject c one two fifty four and of such solecisms as the plural possessive pronoun there in substitution for the singular his one three ninety to ninety one and four seven fifty three and of footnote there are farcical interludes in prose which owe their ludicrous effect to their crudity and occasionally to their childish obscenity apart from its shakespearean associations the drama only deserves attention as a specimen of the humble average fair which commended itself to the elizabethan playgoer on its own merits it is an undistinguished unit in that pedestrian category of dramatic endeavour which found in the elizabethan playhouse singularly warm welcome even during the active careers of the elizabethan giants of drama theories of authorship there is no clue to the author's name the play was published anonymously external evidence is wanting and internal evidence gives no clear guidance it has long been the fantastic habit of Elizabethan critics to hang the heavy load of most of the anonymous Elizabethan drama round the necks of Marlowe, Lodge, Kidd, Peel, and Green. Signs of the workmanship of one or other of these five writers have been accordingly detected in the piece before us. The argument of identification rests in this, as in other cases, on more or less arbitrary assumptions. It is based on occasional resemblances between this play and the acknowledged work of one or other of these five men in small details of construction, expression, or versification. Marlowe's genius entitles him to a better fate. It is fatuous to associate his name with an effort which at no point rises to any fullness of poetic utterance. The characteristic merits of Lodge, Kidd, Peel, or Green are far inferior to those of Marlowe, They walk on the lower slopes of the Elizabethan Parnassus. Their dramatic work, although at times warmed by bursts of passionate fervour, lacks for the most part indubitable marks of exalted individuality. Method, thought, metre and language take through their plays the impression of a common mould cut in low relief, and the present play, like many in the massive crowd of anonymous pieces of the period is of that widely distributed average type the strong family likeness which characterizes the inferior elizabethan drama of both known and unknown workmanship imperils almost all deductions of identical authorship from purely internal evidence the presence of a very extended series of definite coincidences of style can alone give weight to such inferences no such coincidences are discernible between the old play of lear and dramatic experiments whose authors names are established scattered and disjointed analogies offer in substantial testimony they are no more than common labels of dramatic hack-work which literary aspirants of limited ability produced in rare abundance during the last decade of elizabeth's reign it seems moreover hardly rational to seek the anonymous author of king lear among writers in whose publications anonymity was habitually eschewed when in fifteen ninety four white obtained a license for the publication of king lear he secured a like privilege in regard to two other plays one by peel and one by green both of which were issued with due announcement of their authorship nor was it the want of kidd or lodge or of their publishers to shroud in complete anonymity their literary activities were Green or Peel, Kidd or Lodge, responsible for King Lear, the publisher is not likely to have proved false to his habitual practice, and to have withheld all key to the dramatist's name from the title-page. The absence of the author's name, or of his initials, suggests that he never emerged from a position of obscurity, and that whether or no he wrote more plays than this one, he never acquired genuine fame by any. Lear and Lockrein the author may, with greatest probability, be sought among those shadowy figures, who dealt with similar themes. The story of King Lear belongs to that dark age in the legendary history of Britain which preceded the Roman conquest. The mythic era supplied the fable of Gorbadoc to the earliest Elizabethan tragedy, and the whole family of legends achieved peculiar popularity on the Elizabethan stage during the last decade of the 16th century. Possibly, the author of King Lear may be responsible for one or two of the cognate efforts of mysterious origin, which gloomily distinguished that period. Of these efforts, the most interesting on both internal and external grounds is the lamentable tragedy of Locrine. Locrine was a British prince who was Lear's legendary ancestor, and the tragedy concerning his career was published in 1595 a year after king lear was produced in the theatre and was first licensed for publication apart from the likeness of subject-matter the metrical monotony of the verse the crude interludes of farce in prose the tone of many classical and scriptural allusions and occasional poetic patches on their tame canvas give a vague colour to the theory that king lear was a first attempt in drama by the author of locrine both dramatists sought their material in the same repository of fable which geoffrey of monmouth had brought into being there is no large difference in the dramatic temper of the two pieces and such distinctions as may be drawn may illustrate a familiar law of growth in literary art the later piece is less constrained is more expansive and passionate than the earlier but the increase of power and passion may be the outcome of added experience unluckily the speculation cannot yield very solid fruit for the authorship of Locrine is shrouded in an impenetrable mist. The title page assigns it to W. S. Initials which were clearly invented by the publisher to give the unwary reader the false impression that the play came from Shakespeare's pen. Plausible grounds have, in conformity with the inevitable custom, been advanced in favour of Green's responsibility for Locrine but all are of questionable validity. William Rankins Another dramatic worker in the same legendary field, who claims mention in this context, is historically in a situation which curiously reverses that of the unknown author of Locrine. In 1598, Henslow, the theatrical manager, produced a piece called after one of Lear's most famous successors on the mythical throne of Britain, malmutius Donwallow. this legendary personage is reckoned to have brought to a close the internecine strife of ferex and porex and to have inaugurated a new era of peace and law the elizabethan drama of which malmutius was the hero has less fortunate than locrine been lost yet by way of tantalizing compensation the dramatist's name has escaped the oblivion which has overtaken the author of locrine Henslow declares that the writer of Malmutius Donwallow was William Rankins, i.e. Rankins. Rankins was sole or part author, according to Henslow's record, of three other historical plays between the end of fifteen ninety eight and the beginning of six hundred and one. Like Malmutius, all have vanished. In the absence of any specimens of Rankins' dramatic work, His dramatic powers can only be dimly guessed from some extant satires of more vigour than grace, and from a little occasional verse of bald simplicity. He was clearly a humble practitioner in letters, but his capacity need not have proved unequal to the task of dramatising the fables of Lear in 1594, and even of Locrine in 1595, as well as the mythical career of their descendant Malmutius Donwallow in 1598 the suggestion is at any rate worth parenthetic notice it should be added that rankins and a friend in the same literary category as himself richard hathway were joint authors of the lost piece about john of gaunt's conquest of spain which was licensed to edward white for publication at the same date in 1594 as king lear and that this historic drama was undergoing revision by the two authors at Henslow's expense, early in 1601. Rankin's was, at any rate, an active figure in the theatrical arena, while the dramatic possibilities of the old story of King Lear were first brought to the notice of the Elizabethan public. The Legend of Geoffrey of Monmouth The fable of an aged father who divides his property among his three daughters, in reward for their profession of love, and then suffers a cruel disillusionment from a misinterpretation of their assurances, is a folk story of great antiquity and wide distribution. Its absorption by the legendary history of Britain can be traced to no earlier source than Geoffrey of Monmouth's 12th century chronicle, a massive monument of stubborn credulity. In Geoffrey's Latin history of British kings, King Lear and his daughters hold a central place. Geoffrey claims to translate British records of immemorial antiquity, but the alleged fountain of his stream of incredible information need not detain us here. It is sufficient for our present purpose to know that from the 12th to the 17th centuries, Geoffrey's fables of Lear and his line were accepted as authentic history, and were in continuous process of recapitulation, even to the date of Milton's death in 1674 by a succession of chroniclers and historians who enjoyed general repute. Lear and Brute Geoffrey is responsible for the strange allegation, which very long and obstinately held its ground, that Britain owed its name and the birth of its civilization to one Brute, an imaginary grandson of Aeneas of Troy, who settled with a band of followers in the island more than two thousand years before the Christian era. Brute is credited with founding London under the name of Troyanova or Troynavant, and with begetting a long line of British kings. His son Loughrine was followed in the eighth generation by Lear, son of Bladud, on whose career Geoffrey grafted the folktale of the three daughters. Lear's royal progeny is carried by Geoffrey through six or seven further generations, until its extinction amid the fatal strife of King Gorbaduc's sons, Ferex and Porex. With the deaths of these fierce warriors, a new dynasty of the same Trojan stain was inaugurated by Malmutius Donwallow, son of Cloton, Duke of Cornwall, a lawgiver after the pattern of Numa Pompilius of Rome. Malmutius's descendants supplied the throne of Britain with brave occupants for ten or more centuries his line which included king lud the renovator of london survived the roman occupation and became feudatory to the roman empire cymbeline who was reckoned to be coeval with the opening of the christian era was don wallow's distant heir only with the invasion of the jutes under hengist and horsa and the ending of the british dynasty on the passing away of king arthur did the dominion initiated by brute and his trojan companions pass altogether to another race. To Geoffrey's story of the ancient and long-lived dynasty, Shakespeare owed more or less directly two of his heroes, Cymbeline as well as Lear. LEAR AND THE ELIZABETHAN HISTORIANS Geoffrey's legend was retold by more than fifty writers, chroniclers, historians and poets before the production of the old play concerning the Brito-Trojan King Lear. Leamon, at the end of the 12th century, first turned the tradition into English in his poem called *Brute*. In the 16th century, Lear's tale found its appointed place in the preliminary sections of English chronicles, by Fabian, Grafton, Stowe, and Hollinshead, and was, with its setting, very slowly dislodged from credible history. With the notable exceptions of Camden and Speed, the chief archaeologists of Shakespeare's day Viewed all the details of the Trojan myth as articles of orthodox belief. Robert Greene, whose varied writings reflect with fidelity contemporary culture, seriously described in 1590, on the authority of the antiquaries, the city of London as that famous Troynevant, plotted and erected by Brute, and after famosed by King Ludd and his successors. footnote. Green's The Royal Exchange, fifteen ninety, in prose works, editor, Grossart, volume seven, page two hundred twenty two. And footnote, even Milton declined to reject altogether the Trojan pedigree of the British crown. Scepticism, which found an occasional voice, was rejected as unpatriotic. Queen Elizabeth was many times saluted with the utmost gravity by literary admirers as a worthy representative of that ancient house of Troy, of which Lear, like Brute, Locrine, Bladud, and Lud, was a shining ornament. Poets under James I repeatedly called the chief city of the kingdom Troinovant, or New Troy. Thomas Decker entitled the pageant, which he devised for the entry into office of the Lord Mayor of London in 1612, Troia Nova Triumphance, London Triumphing. Footnote: During Henry VIII's reign, Polydore Virgil denied the existence of Brute and his family, and denounced as a credulous invention the whole pedigree of British kings. Polydore had early disciples, nearly all of whom were of foreign or Scottish origin, and their scepticism was assigned to racial envy. The Scottish historian and poet, George Buchanan, was among the adverse critics. At the extreme end of Elizabeth's reign, The sceptical argument won respectful attention at home from Camden and Speed, but the old story still held its ground in England, even in the scholarly circle of which Sir Henry Savile was an ornament. The authenticity of the story of Lear and his ancestry was strenuously defended by Richard Harvey, Gabriel Harvey's brother, in Philadelphus, or a defence of Brutes and the Brutons' history, 1593 of which the dedication was accepted by Robert Devereux Earl of Essex, the Queen's favourite. The poet Drayton pursued a middle course and in the introduction to his Polyolbion sixteen twenty two maintained quote, as an advocate for the muse end quote, the Cambro-Briton traditions of the Trojan settlers, though he admitted historic difficulties. It is curious to notice how closely Milton's attitude resembled Drayton's, in his history of britain he acknowledges the growth of doubt respecting brute and his dynasty but declines to abandon the story on the ground that it still enjoyed the approval of men not unread nor unlearned in antiquity and that its conservation was in favour of our english poets and rhetoricians who by their art will know how to use them the stories judiciously THE TALE OF LEAR IS RELATED BY MILTON IN FULL DETAIL IN ITS LEGENDARY CYCLE. C. F. MILTON AS A HISTORIAN BY PROFESSOR C. H. FIRTH IN THE PROCEEDINGS OF THE BRITISH ACADEMY, VOLUME 3, 1908. Footnote. LEAR AND THE ELIZABETHAN EPIC Wherever the Trojan myth spread, the memory of Lear was known and honoured. The epic poets of the Elizabethan era showed no less zeal than the chroniclers in tracing through the ages the royal progress of the British Trojans. And although they were eclectic in their choice of episodes, they invariably retold the legend of Lear and his daughters. In 1586, William Warner, in his Albion's England, a rambling poetic chronicle from the time of Noah to in its original form, that of William the Conqueror, gleaned much from Geoffrey of Monmouth and his followers and laid stress on lear's tragic history book three chapter fourteen a year later the mirror for magistrates embodied in its selected tragedies of early britain a long and piteous autobiography of Cordelia, king lear's youngest daughter similarly the greatest of elizabethan epic poets edmund Spenser, devoted a canto of his fairy queen to the trojan myth and dwelt with pathetic sympathy ON The sufferings of the aged monarch and his youngest child. Footnote. Sir Gion, in the second book of the Fairy Queen, canto x, reads an quote, ancient book, Hight Britain Monuments, end quote, which gives an account of the British kings from Brute to Uther, father of King Arthur. King Lear's experiences fill six stanzas, twenty seven to thirty two the version of the story by warner which is not very accessible and is a chief source of the old play is reprinted in an appendix to this volume the brito-trojan kings and the elizabethan drama the birth of elizabethan drama was contemporaneous with an uprising of national feeling the drama sought a vast amount of its early sustenance from the early records of national history The history play was the most popular item in the repertory of the Elizabethan theatrical manager. In view of the habitual attitude of historical and epic writers, the dramatist and his audience were not likely to draw any fine distinction between insubstantial legend and attested fact. The heroes of the Trojan dynasty were consequently pressed into the theatrical service with the same energy and enthusiasm as the Plantagenets or early Tudor sovereigns. The adventures of King Gorboduc of the Trojan line and of his quarrelsome sons Ferex and Porex formed the topics of the first regular English tragedy. Before the end of the sixteenth century, Brute, Locrine, Malmutius, Donwallo, Elidure, King Lud all joined King Lear in seeking on the Elizabethan stage the suffrages of the playgoer. The experiences of Uther Pendragon. His son, King Arthur, Merlin, Vortigern, Hengist, Caradoc, great personages who were assigned to the extreme close of the primeval age of Britain, were also approved themes of contemporary dramatic efforts. Footnote. Of the twelve pieces indicated in the text, only six dealing with the stories of Locrine, Lear, Elidor, King Arthur, Merlin, and Caradoc survive in print the plays about elidor and caradoc were called respectively nobody and somebody no date and the valiant welshman sixteen fifteen henslow attests in his diary the performance of the other cited plays none of which survive distinction should be drawn between the life and death of king arthur which henslow notices as a lost work of richard hathaway and a piece on the same subject the misfortunes of arthur by Thomas Hughes and others, which is extant in an edition of 1587. The whole subject is ably treated by Professor Felix Schelling in the English Chronicle Play, New York, 1902. And The Descent of the Lear Story The story of King Lear underwent singularly little change as it passed through the ages from pen to pen of chronicler or poet. Footnote a valuable account of the descent of the story of king lear through english literature from geoffrey of monmouth to shakespeare is given by dr wilfrid perrett in palestra volume thirty five berlin nineteen hundred and four under the title of the story of king lear from geoffrey of monmouth to shakespeare dr perrett enumerates fifty-two writers who retold geoffrey of monmouth's story before fifteen ninety four the date of the old play's composition. The differences are small. Dr. Perritt's analysis of the old play of King Lear, and of Shakespeare's tragedy of the same name, brings out many important details, touching the sources of the two dramatists' information. The present edition of the old play stands indebted to Dr. Perrott's careful researches at many points. End of footnote Such minor modifications as the legend experienced in its long descent from the 12th to the 16th century seem due to casual errors of transcription. It is improbable that the old dramatist had recourse to any earlier narrative than that of his contemporary Hollinshead, or that he placed reliance on any additional sources of information, save the poetic versions in Albion's England, the Mirror for Magistrates and the Fairy Queen but although he can find his research to books of his own epoch, his play involuntarily reproduces, without essential qualification, the original story of Geoffrey of Monmouth. On the small points in which Geoffrey is at variance with his imitators, the old dramatist echoes the notes of Hollinshead, or one of the three Elizabethan poets. The Old Dramatist's Use of His Authorities Much difference exists in the literature of Lear respecting the titles of the husbands of the king's two unfilial daughters. The majority follow Geoffrey in calling Goneril's husband Duke of Albany, i.e. Scotland, and Regan's husband Duke of Cornwall. Shakespeare is faithful to this nomenclature. Hollinshead reverses the husbands' titles, associating Goneril's married life with the ruler of Cornwall, and Regan's with that of Albany. The old dramatist adopts head suggestion, as far as Goneril is concerned, and bestows her hand in marriage on the King of Cornwall. But he seeks in Spenser, who therein differs from all his predecessors, the title of King of Cambria for the husband of Regan. The old dramatist, in fact, improved on Spenser by giving the King of Cambria the added Christian name of Morgan, which has no authority. This variation may be attributed. To the peculiarly close juxtaposition in the mirror for magistrates of the traditional story of a personage of this name who figured in the ancient narrative as the son of the daughter goneril and a successor of Cordula on the British throne. To Spenser again the old dramatist seems to owe another original variation on the archetype which makes Lear's two unfilial daughters cast lots as to which part of their father's kingdom shall fall to each. In the standard version, Lear makes the division on his sole and unprompted authority. Footnote Spencer's employment in his version of the somewhat unusual words regiment, i. e. dominion, and grutch, i. e. complain, is adopted in the old play. See glossary. See also notes on one 3, 119 to one hundred and twenty two one four. End of footnote. The debt, however, to Warner's epic treatment of the fable seems larger than to Spenser's. From Warner comes the form Cordella for the name of the king's youngest daughter, as well as the appellation the Gallian King for Cordella's husband. Many phrases too in the old play echo the language of Warner's Albion's England. Footnote: See notes on one one forty-two. One three ninety three to ninety four two two fifty nine to sixty three three forty three to forty six, end of footnote. Warner, moreover, alone gave the hint which the old dramatist liberally expanded of the eldest daughter's unfilial attempt on the old king's life. Original developments, but in spite of the dramatist's fidelity to the main features of the tradition. He must be allowed ingenuity in stretching the scanty material which the old story offered to the full limits of a five act drama. Judged by a Shakespearean standard, the old dramatist is a clumsy and perfunctory manipulator of the bare motives and actions of the mediaeval legend. But if we strictly compare his adaptation to the exclusion of Shakespeare with any earlier treatment of the theme in prose or poetry, we cannot deny him a fertility of invention which issues in an astonishing advance on preceding efforts he infuses a touch of living colour into more than one character or incident of which there is the merest hint in the earlier narratives elsewhere wholly new characters and incidents lend the tale a variety which lies outside the scope of the ancient tradition perillus of original embellishments by far the most important is the character of perillus the old king's faithful companion, no such character figures in the current versions of the legend. Geoffrey of Monmouth vaguely notes that one knight attended the old king on his escape from England to his youngest daughter's home in France. All his followers had deserted him, excepto quodam Amigero in the Gesta Romanorum alone of all succeeding recensions is this feature of the tale repeated there a single squire attends lear on his arrival in france but it may well be doubted whether such slender hints can be held responsible for the old dramatist's presentment of the deserted king's devoted servants perilous in the old play is to a far greater degree than his analogue kent in shakespeare's tragedy one of the pillars of the action there is point and freshness about the courtier's independence and self-respecting loyalty which stiffen the whole dramatic fabric perilous frank rebuke of king lear's moral blindness in the opening scenes and his subsequent companionship of his old master in his lonely wanderings give the fable a glow of humanity which would otherwise be wanting another new character is scaliger the disingenuous counsellor of the aged king who first suggests the division of his property he is sketched in far more slender outline than perilous, but a substantial indication is given, as the old play progresses, of the conflict in a vulgar mind between self-interest and loyalty. Although a child of the old dramatist's fancy, there possibly went to his making a vague word in Warner's Albion's England, where the old king exclaims in the distress of his abandonment, Bid non a in friends! The legendary dramatis personae are invariably confined to the old king and his three daughters and their three husbands. A third character, who is first grafted on the old story by the dramatist, is the galleon king's bluff, breezy-tempered companion, Mumford, who is as brave a soldier as the bastard in King John, and is cast in the same mould. Other new characters include apart from subsidiary figures like the crude-witted watchmen and captains the unprincipled messenger who is commissioned by goneril to murder her injured father this shag-haired murdering wretch plays a part of some importance in the development of the plot he is a careless villain of that conventional type which was dear to embryonic drama A slight attempt is also made by the old dramatist for the first time to invest with individuality the characters of the unfilial daughters' husbands. Their denunciation of the cruel callousness of their wives is an original and human touch. THE NEW NOMENCLATURE The nomenclature of the three wholly original characters of chief importance, perillus Scaliger and Mumford, betrays wild incoherence. Perilus is known to classical literature, notably to Ovid and Pliny, as the inventor for the tyrant Phalaris of a brazen instrument of torture, shaped like a bull, of which he was condemned by the patron to be the first victim. Footnote. For Ovid's mention of Perilus, see Samatoria, one 653, in Holland's Translation of Pliny's Natural History, 1634, page 504. The story of Perilus runs thus. Quote, As for Perilus, there is no man commendeth him for his workmanship, but holdeth him more cruel than Phalaris the tyrant, who set him a work, for that he devised a brazen bull to roast and fry condemned persons. In assuring the tyrant that after the fire was made under it, they would, when they cried, seem to bellow like a bull, and so rather make sport than move compassion. But this Perilus was the first himself that gave the Hansel to the engine of his own invention, and although this was cruelty in the tyrant, yet surely such a workman deserved no better a reward, and justly he felt the smart of it. Perilus's story is also told in the popular medieval collection of stories, Gesta Romanorum, number 48, though it only figures in the Latin version and is absent from the early English translations. Gower, in his Confessio Amantis, lines 3295 sec, also narrates the adventures of Perilus, though he misspells the name Berilus. Perilus is to be distinguished from Perellus, a notorious lawyer and usurer of Rome, whom Horace mentions in Satires 3, line 75. and a footnote. Even less rational seems the bestowal of the designation Scaliger, s k a l l i g e r on lear's less reputable counsellor the name seems only known elsewhere as that of two great scholars of the renaissance in the familiar form scaliger s c a l i g e r the elder scaliger's monumental treatise on the art of poetry was a textbook of scholarship in england and on the european continent through great part of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries Mumford, the galleon king's companion, is christened with no greater propriety. The word is a variant of the more familiar form, Mountfort, or Mountford. Employing a conventional pun, the character remarks, I am kin to the blunts, and I think the bluntest of all my kindred. Therefore, if I be too blunt with you, thank yourself for praying me to be so. to 47 the great elizabethan family of the blounts enjoyed the baronial title of mountjoy to which a mysterious allusion is possibly made there on the other hand the dramatists may be merely illustrating an irresponsible vein of frivolity Footnotes. the jest on the surname blount is repeated in thomas thorpe's dedication of Marlowe's translation of the first book of lucan sixteen hundred to his friend edward blount Quote, Blount, I purpose to be blunt with you. The old dramatist indulges in many unimpressive puns of light calibre. C. F. Two four one hundred twenty six Cordella, cordial to my heart, and four eight thirteen to hop without her hope. end End of footnote. The courtship of Cordella. Of the new incidents grafted by the dramatist on the legend, the episode of the French king's hasty courtship of Cordella is most notable. Dismissed from her father's house on the day of her two sisters' weddings, King Lear's youngest daughter unexpectedly meets on the highway two men in the guise of palmers or pilgrims. One of the wayfarers makes love to her, and she accepts his offer of marriage. Neither knows the other's rank. Her lover proves to be the King of Gallia, who, with his light-hearted friend and courtier, Mumford, has come to Britain on a frolic. Disguised as pilgrims or palmers, they are bent on paying their addresses to fair British girls. Cordella's marriage is solemnised after due recognition without delay. Nowhere else does the matrimonial career of Cordella begin so unceremoniously. The normal version, as supplied by Hollinshead, shows how one of the princes of gallia hearing of cordelia's quote, "beauty womanhood and good conditions" sent her father an offer of marriage." End quote. Lear answered, quote, "that the prince might have his daughter but as for any dower he could have none for all was promised and assured to her other sisters already." End quote. This reply carried no weight with the prince who took cordelia quote, to wife only moved thereto i say for respect of her person and amiable virtues the old dramatist has substituted for this tame solicitation the crudely comic episode of an accidental and unpremeditated courtship most of the striking features of the wanderings of leah after his banishment by his daughters are likewise an invention of the old dramatist The messenger's threat of murder may have been suggested by Warner, but the cruel thunderstorm, which, while it shakes the villain's nerve, exposes King Lear to terrible suffering, is due to no earlier version. The details of the meeting and reconciliation of Lear with his youngest daughter and the old man's remorseful obeisances completely reconstruct a very bald passage in the traditional story. The Ending of the Play The ending of the old play follows the authentic legend without modification. Lear, after seeking asylum in France with his youngest daughter, returns to England with her and her husband at the head of an armed force. War is declared on Goneril and Regan and on their husbands, and the rout of the latter's armies brings the drama to its close. The unfilial daughters leave the scene alive but ruined. No character suffers death lear is restored to his throne amid the rejoicings of cordella and the galleon king the old dramatist ignores any later episodes of the old story which tells how lear reigned three years after his triumphs and was then succeeded by cordella how five years later queen cordella was driven from her throne by morgan son of her sister goneril and how she finally committed suicide in prison footnote in spencer's fairy queen 2.10.32, the traditional account of Cordelia's restoration of her father, and of her own unhappy end in a subsequent year, runs thus. Quote, so to his, Lear's crown, she, Cordelia, him restored again. In which he died, made ripe for death by eld, and after willed it should to her remain, who peaceably the same long time did weld, and all men's hearts in due obedience held till that her sister's children waxen strong through proud ambition against her rebelled and overcome kept in prison long till weary of that wretched life herself she hung the old dramatist gives an indication that he was acquainted with the later narrative of cordelia's career by employing the name morgan but it remained for Shakespeare to associate the old king with his youngest daughter's death, and thus convert Lear's fate into inexorable tragedy. Footnote The seventeenth-century ballad, entitled A Lamentable Song of the Death of King Lear and His Three Daughters, closes, like Shakespeare's tragedy, with the deaths of Lear and his youngest daughter, who is called Cordelia by the ballad-maker. The date of the ballad is uncertain, some controversy has arisen over the question whether it were penned before or after shakespeare's play the balance of evidence seems against the priority of the ballad it was printed for the first time in sixteen twenty in richard johnson's golden garlands of princely pleasures and delicate delights the only copy of the book which appears to be known is in the british museum and it is described on the title page as the third edition but there is ground for believing that the book had not appeared before in any issue of earlier date. The ballad treats the main events of the Lear legend after the manner of Warner or Hollinshead. The only divergence concerns the catastrophe, which there is good reason to regard as borrowed from Shakespeare's tragedy. The ballad, which Doctor Perret carefully reprints from Johnson's volume, Palestra, thirty-five pages 125-142, to has small pertinence to a study of the old play. Shakespeare's Treatment of the Old Drama It may be admitted that in the absence of the old play, Shakespeare might well have detected in the legend all the tragic potency which he ultimately drew from it. Shakespeare refashioned and strengthened the great issues of the plot by methods which lay wholly outside the old dramatist's capacity there is no trace of lear's fool in any earlier version shakespeare too sought an entirely new complication for the story by grafting on it complementarily the by-plot of the duke of gloucester and his sons which he drew from a wholly different source sir philip sidney's arcadia nor was he satisfied with the catastrophe of the chronicles, which contented the earlier dramatist. The restoration of Lear to his forsaken throne at the hands of Cordelia and her husband, the Gallian king, was rejected for the defeat of the foreign invaders and for the death of Lear and Cordelia. But it remains manifest, none the less, that the great dramatist owed to his humble predecessor numerous suggestions, which he frankly adopted. Indeed many of the humanizing touches which the old dramatist imported into the legend became the main basis of Shakespeare's mighty superstructure. This admission does not underrate the larger metamorphosis which Shakespeare's unapproachable tragic gift wrought in the whole scheme of the fable. It merely acknowledges a biological process. Kent and Perilous kent is shakespeare's most conspicuous debt to the old play kent's character and action reproduce albeit with heightened emotion the old dramatist's conception of perilous the change of name and the presentation of lear's companion as a man young enough to be his son instead of his own age as in the old play leave untouched the essential points of resemblance hardly any of the speeches which perilous and lear address to one another failed to yield suggestion to shakespeare Perillus's stirring appeal to his sovereign to cancel his condemnation of cordelia is met by the old king with these lines two three ninety nine to one hundred and three urge this no more and if thou love thy life i say she is no daughter that doth scorn to tell her father how he loveth him whoever speaketh hereof to me again i will esteem him for my mortal foe in shakespeare's play the echo of these words is distinctly audible in the passionate denunciation of kent by lear in the opening scene with its issue in kent's banishment under threat of death king lear one 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 hundred and twelve sec peace kent come not between the dragon and his wrath i loved her most kent on thy life no more in the old play, Perillus is not punished for his protest by banishment, but he absents himself from the court and does not meet his old master again until his unfilial daughters have thrust the king from their doors. Then he offers his companionship to the royal vagrant, who accepts it without recognising his old courtier. Shakespeare again adapted that episode to his purpose. Despairingly does Lear address Perillus. Three three seventy nine to eighty eight. Thus, nay, if thou talk of reason, then be mute. What reason moveth thee to sorrow for me? These lines give the obvious cue to the famous speech of Shakespeare's King. Two four two hundred sixty seven. sec. O reason not the need, etc. Similarly, on Perillus's description of his heartbroken master, Lear. Three one twelve to thirteen, but he the mirror of all mild patience puts up all wrongs and never gives reply. Shakespeare founded Lear's piteous speech to the fool. No, I will be the pattern of all patience. I will say nothing. Lear three two thirty seven on no other character in the old play does Shakespeare levy so many loans as on Perillus, but further proofs of contact although a smaller interest abound the humanity of goneril's husband the duke of albany is drawn from the old dramatist's hint there is a reminiscence of scaliger in the fool's otherwise inexplicable reference one four one hundred thirty nine two that lord that counselled thee to give away thy land no lord gives such counsel to lear in shakespeare's play it was the advice with which the old dramatist credited Scaliger, whose time-serving propensities helped to generate the wicked civility of Goneril's servant, Oswald. Something of the stage business which is associated in Shakespeare's tragedy with the exchange of letters, e.g. between Regan and Goneril, 4282, Kent and Cordelia, 4311, sec, and Goneril and Edmund, four five Seems traceable to the interception by Goneril in the old play of letters addressed to Lear, three five forty-five sec, and to the passage of letters between Regan and Goneril, four three passim. Regan's angry outburst of unfilial heartlessness on reading Goneril's written complaint of the old king's quote, presumption, four three fourteen sec, may have given the cue to the splendid outcry in Shakespeare's piece of filial sympathy to which cordelia gives passionate utterance on receiving kent's written report of her father's distresses four three eleven to thirty four other of shakespeare's adaptations in lear's terrible curse of goneril strike her young bones with lameness king lear two four one hundred and sixty five shakespeare adapts from the old piece lear's taunting allusion to goneril's young bones i e unborn child king lear three three twenty seven another borrowed feature of great impressiveness is the thunderstorm which is the grimmest of all lear's tortures in both pieces so again lear's twice-repeated offer at the close to kneel for pardon at the feet of his injured daughter cordelia is an inspiration of shakespeare's predecessor footnote cf king lear five four two hundred and three to two hundred and six cordella but look dear father look behold and see thy loving daughter speaketh unto thee she kneels lear oh stand thou up it is my part to kneel and ask forgiveness for my former faults he rises at his daughter's entreaty only to quote, kneel again till pardon be resigned stage directions appended to this passage twice enjoin on the old man the act of kneeling so in shakespeare's king lear four seven fifty seven to fifty nine cordelia says to her father oh look upon me sir and hold your hand in benediction o'er me no sir you must not kneel again five three ten to eleven lear exclaims in his daughter's ear when thou dost ask me blessing i'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness the greatness and the glory of shakespeare's achievement may depend little on these comparatively minor details shakespeare passed far beyond the bounds marked out by the older hand his powers through the tragedy are always mounting until they finally gain almost celestial heights The historic tradition of Cordelia's latest years, and her suicide in prison, may have weighed with Shakespeare in framing his last scenes. But in his exalted conception of the reason and manner of her death, he obeyed, if anywhere, the clear untutored call of his genius. There the old drama could give him small help. The intensity of his tragic power through the concluding acts of King Lear is all his own, the final goal of the tragedy was reached without appeal to external aid nevertheless the old dramatist deserves a reverent commemoration as the guide of shakespeare's steps in the first stages of his impressive journey which ended in the apotheosis of king lear and his daughter end of introduction to the chronicle history of king lear and his three daughters by sidney lee read by phil benson